the thing that was the most difficult to try to handle was that she is dying. But because we all knew that, my aunt really just kind of put out a call to people, you know, like she is dying. Mm -hmm. And if you want to see her before she dies, you should come now. And Mm -hmm. everyone came. Hey, everyone. I'm Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast. We're going back to school with a rebroadcast of an episode that originally aired in August of 2017 when we spoke with media scholar, journalist, and American University professor Sherry Williams about a piece she wrote for Elle Digital Magazine. Stay tuned, and we'll see you next week with a brand new episode. Here's the show. A new series of articles in L Online explores the concept of squad care as opposed to self-care, noting that users on Instagram have tagged over 2.5 million posts with the hashtag self-care. L makes the point that we may think we can practice care on our own, but the reality is we exist in, quote, matrices of allies and friends, quote, who do the work of care for us. So self-care is cool, but squad care is where it's at. We're joined today by a contributor to that L Online series. Dr. Sherry Williams teaches in the School of Communication at American University. Her work examines social media, social television, and how people of color use and are represented on social media. Additionally, she looks at how people of color and marginalized peoples are represented in the media. Prior to academia, Dr. Williams spent a decade as a print journalist, including for the Associated Press. Her work has appeared in Essence, Ebony, a whole bunch of other places, and she has presented twice at South by Southwest Interactive. But it was her piece for Elle Online that caught my attention. It's titled, It Takes a Squad to Care for an Elder. I'm going to let Sherry tell you what it's all about. Dr. Sherry Williams, welcome to the AgeWise Podcast. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity to talk about this really important issue. Well, let's put this in context for our listeners. Um, You were born in Michigan, right? Can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing and life in the Williams household growing up? Yeah, so I was born in Benton Harbor, Michigan, um, which is a really small town in southwestern Michigan. I was born, like so many other people in my family, at Mercy Hospital, which was coincidentally um, right across the alley, basically in in the backyard of my paternal grandparents' home. So I was born in Benton Harbor, raised in Kalamazoo, grew up in southwestern Michigan. My grandparents were um, transplants from the deep south. They were part of the um, older black generation that was trying to escape Jim Crow, segregation, and lack of opportunity. So they were part of that wave Mm -hmm. of the great migration that moved to Michigan for better opportunities, particularly when manufacturing was really um, exploding in terms of job opportunities. So that's pretty much how um, most of us got there, the Williamses and the Burnsides. And um, how many kids in your family? Um, I have two brothers. I have two twin brothers. Yeah, so my brothers are are older than me. And it's just the three of you. Yes. So you're the you're the baby. Okay. I know your yes. the grandma that you wrote about was a big presence in your life. Tell us about her and how she influenced you growing up. So we grew up in Kalamazoo, which is about 50 miles from Benton Harbor. And even though we all of us were born in Benton Harbor, my brothers and I were born at the same hospital. My father 
and their father and my mother were all born at the same hospital. We moved to Kalamazoo when I was two years old and when my brothers were four. But even though um, we didn't grow up in Benton Harbor, we were still there a lot during the weekends and also during the summers because uh, all of our extended family was there. So um, we'd go to Benton Harbor a lot. So that particular grandmother, my paternal grandmother, um, Celestine Marie Burnside, I would go to church with her, be around her. um, And the same thing with my maternal grandparents too. So, I mean, you know, growing up, I spent a lot of time with them. And the really sweet thing about um, my paternal grandmother is that um, being at her house was really fun because she lived on the 900 block of Bishop and her brother, who was one of my favorite uncles, lived on the 1000 block of Bishop. So if I wanted to go see my <laughs> uncle, all I had to do was just walk down the block. And then at one point in time, my aunt Bernadette lived right next door to him. So there were three siblings wow. living on two blocks on Bishop and Benton Harbor at one time. Mm-hmm. And that's right on Lake Michigan, right? That's real pretty, I'll bet. Yep. Yep, it is. And so in the article, you noted the fact that your family was really focused on your granddad and losing his eyesight. And your grandmother was always taking care of him, giving him daily eye drops to maintain his sight. And um, your Aunt Doris was planning a family reunion when you got a call from her that was not about the reunion. Tell us about that. So it was actually, I will. Okay, so it was actually my grandmother who we talked a a lot. So Mm -hmm. we probably talked, if not once a week, maybe twice a month. Um, But we did talk pretty regularly. And my grandmother kept saying that, you know, your grandfather, his eyesight is failing and I want to get everybody together um, one last time so that he could actually physically see everyone, Mm -hmm. even though she knew that people would still visit him and he would still be able to talk to people and touch them and all that kind of stuff. She still just wanted him to actually be able to physically see everyone when his sight was still um, relatively sharp. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talked about like, so because they have a pretty sizable backyard. Well, should we get round tables? Should we get picnic tables? You know, like, what do we want to be able to do with the little kids? Well, she's like, I know you like to sing and you guys talk about karaoke a lot. I wonder if there's a place where we can rent, rent a karaoke machine. Uh-huh. Everybody loves chicken <laughs> coop chicken. That's a hometown favorite because mm-hmm. when all of us go home, we always get wings from chicken coop and different stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. we were doing all this planning. She was really looking forward to it. I mean, that was almost every time. Well, not yet every, not almost, but every time we talked, we'd be talking about other things too, because she's someone who was, had a really voracious appetite in terms of news consumption. She watched the Hmm. news a lot. I mean, like she Hmm. knew who Jay-Z was because she saw a profile on him on 60 Minutes. Wow. kind of fell in love with him and would even ask me like have you heard the new Jay-Z album and I'd be like grandma please do you really know who Jay-Z is oh that's so cute though oh that's the so rapper cute. from Brooklyn like what do you mean she's keeping up and I'd be like grandma for real yeah so she really knew who a lot of people were I mean like pop culture politics you know mm-hmm. she knew it all because she watched the news a lot so even if we would be mm-hmm. talking about pop culture politics whatever it was we would always talk about this upcoming family reunion. But then I got a call from my Aunt Doris on um, July 4th, and she was saying that, you know, I know that you're planning on coming home in August, but Mama was just diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, so if you want to see her, you better come now. And I was just in shock, and I was like, wait a minute, what is going on? Because I knew that, like, she had diabetes, and she was 82 years old and not 
feeling well all mm-hmm. of the time mm-hmm. and, you know, had some issues related to, you know, as the body ages and gets older, it doesn't operate the way that it sure. used to. So I knew there were some issues like that. But and, you know, when people get older, too, like they go to the doctor's office a lot. And I was really confused because I was like, she goes to the doctor a lot. How could this not have been detected yeah. and been so aggressive up until this point? But it, she was still diagnosed on July 4th. And she was dead on July 28th. Oh, my goodness. So when she told me that, yeah, I was in graduate school at the time. I was a full-time graduate student. And um, because I was a research assistant during the summer and I was working remotely, I just hurried up and packed a bag and got on a train and headed to Michigan. And I just planned to stay as long as I could because, I mean, I just couldn't believe that this was real. But, I mean, I, I just I just wanted to see her and I just wanted to be there. And my aunt actually, if I can remember correctly, I knew that it was like the 4th of July holiday. Mm -hmm. And I think she was down there just, yeah, she was down there just to visit for the holiday. And she ended up not going home. Oh, wow. Pancreatic cancer is really aggressive too, right? It is very aggressive. And yeah, so uh, my mother still lives in Kalamazoo. Mm -hmm. And so I took like a couple of days to go from Benton Harbor to Kalamazoo to be with her to try to, you know, like help her go to the store, do some things, stock up, that kind of stuff. And also to see about her. And when I came back in just those two days, grandma's health had declined dramatically. Like she, she would stand up and not really remember why she stood up. And Hmm. um, I'd be like, where are you going? She'd say like, Oh, I don't know. And then sit Hmm. back down and, and just like, yeah. So, I mean, there was, a really accelerated decline toward the end. Oh, wow. So when you went from New York to Michigan, you spent the night in the hospital. And I thought this was I really did. touching. You said you went home where, quote, she she knew she was going to die, your grandmom. Yeah, she did. Was, she there, did. was there any question that she would come home versus stay in the hospital? Or I guess at that point she can't be in the hospital any longer, right? No, because, I mean, they already, so I don't remember how long it took me to get there. I think it only took me like two or three days just to kind of pack everything up. And it took like actually an entire day to travel from New York to Michigan on the train. But even before I got there, my aunt and grandfather had conversations with the medical professionals. Like the cancer had progressed so much that there was not going to be a reversal of her health. She wasn't going to get better, and we knew that. So they were like, basically, all you can do now is just make her feel comfortable. So that's what everyone tried to do. Yeah. So what else do you remember about the hospice workers who arrived in that those end-of-life procedures? Well, I remember the hospice workers always being really generous and just open. Mm-hmm. They were always trying to be helpful and always looking out for the caregivers. Because I will say too, again, like my aunt was there and she was the main caregiver before I got there. And I ended up, so I was there for most of her last days, but I left on a Thursday because I had to go back home and check on some things. And then she died Sunday. So I wasn't there for the actual end of life, Mm -hmm. but I saw her three days before she died. So like I said, I left on a Thursday and then um, I got a call Sunday that she was gone. 
Ugh. And, and you, I mean, we knew that she was going to die, but I just didn't think that it would happen so quickly. I thought that I might be able to have a chance to come back but and see her again, but I didn't. I mean, I went back for the funeral, of course, but I thought I might be able to see her again alive. Mm-hmm. You administered medications to her as well. Was that your first time caring for an older adult? No, no. When she, um, she had back surgery back mm-hmm. in 2005, mm-hmm. and I took a week off of work back then to help care for her. So, hmm. um, no, that wasn't the first time. And like my mother's father had been sick before he actually died last April. And whenever I would be at home and, um, you know, he would be at, at my mother's home, I'd also help out. So mm-hmm. no, that wasn't the first time. And my mother has had several surgeries and yeah, I would always take care of her. She can't be that much older though. I mean, she's not, she, that's still caregiving, no doubt. But no, no. I'm thinking yeah, about in five now, but yeah, yeah, I'm thinking about the aging process and how you grew up around a lot of older folks too. You wrote, "I suppose I knew that someday when my elders aged, I'd help care for them, but it always seemed far off." I think that a lot of folks who grew up with really powerful adults in their lives, like it sounds like you did, who had a youthful relevance, as you say, it's really a shock when you see them getting older and becoming more frail. Yeah, you're right, because I mean, so when I was born, my grandparents were in their 40s. So and honestly, in the 1970s, people who were 40 then, like 40 today is not like what 40 was in 1973, right? right? Right. So 45 or whatever it was. So Mm -hmm. I just remember, like now I look back at pictures of my maternal grandmother, for example, and she was a grandmother at the same age that I am now. And I just kind of look at, look at her at 45 or 44 Mm -hmm. and look Mm -hmm. at myself and just think that I can't believe we're the same age Uh because we just seem like we're in totally different places in our lives. But I mean, I'm not a grandmother, but still, you know what I mean? So even though like my grandmother had been my grandmother all those years, she was always my grandmother. She was always older, but still like knew who Jay-Z was Uh and, you know, watched the Melissa Harris Perry show and right. all this other stuff. You know what I mean? She also so she knew who Dexter kept... Gordon was. Right. Red, Red Garland right. was. I mean, that was her era. Right. She's very modern. Yeah. So, yeah. And so even like my mother's father who died, like I said, last April, mm-hmm. you know, he would keep up with everything. And like, because I think it's on my, on my mother's side of the family, they have more children and more grandchildren. And I think him being around younger people all the time, like different slang terms and colloquialism, mm-hmm. you know, and just the things that he would say, I think, kept him young. Yeah. So, I mean, even though they were always elders and were always older than me, they were always so in touch with contemporary news and pop culture and mm-hmm. everything else. Mm-hmm. And you know how people, they're always older than you, but they just don't seem old. Right. Well, I think that's also because they're around younger people, so they're picking up on phrases and stuff. My mother is 88, and we like to have a lot of younger people around her. So she's, you know, she's up on stuff, too. So it's because I think that they're not walled off like so many older adults are and siloed off in these institutions that they can keep up Mm -hmm. and they're encouraged to keep up. Yeah. Tell us more about the squad that you formed for your grandma. Who else was involved in her care? Well, my Aunt Doris was there all the time. 
I am really proud of the work that she did with my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And I know that she knows how much my grandmother and grandfather and all the family were proud of her because she really was there doing a lot of work. And also my father, who is the oldest son, was there in the home, um, Mm -hmm. living there at the time and doing a lot of really important work. And of course, my grandfather was living there and helping as much as he could at the time. But I mean, he was also someone who had his own health problems. But Mm -hmm. um, like I said, my Aunt Doris originally came just to visit But she ended up not even going home and she lives in Detroit, which is about three hours away. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, she came with not even enough clothes and toiletries to last her all that time. So Mm. her daughters ended up coming down and bringing things for her. But I mean, you Mm. know, she just she, she did a lot of work. My father did. My grandfather helped as much as he could. People just banded together to really take care of her and make her as comfortable as we could because that was the the thing that was just the most difficult to try to handle was that she is dying like she even though she's sitting there watching television laughing and talking with everybody else her body is slowly shutting down right Mm -hmm. and there is going to be a point where she can't even sit up on her own or laugh or talk even though all of this stuff seems very normal right now this will not last for long because I mean it's like the sand in the hourglass and time is running out Mm -hmm. you know that's one thing that to me was just really kind of difficult to grasp but because we all knew that my aunt really just kind of put out a call to people you know like she is dying just to be perfectly clear with people she is dying Mm -hmm. and if you want to see her before she dies you should come now Mm -hmm. and everyone came people came that I hadn't seen since I am 44 years old now there are people who I hadn't seen since I was a teenager well, wow. who came? Yeah, and they came from all over the country, from all across. Wow, the Midwest, that's so touching. From, from everywhere, yeah. And I was really, ha- and I was happy for her because yeah. even though she wanted that family reunion for everyone, for my grandfather, she ended up getting one for herself for a different reason, of course, but I was just really happy for her because these are some of the same people who I would imagine who, you know how sometimes at funerals they say, if anyone wants to come up and make a few remarks for Mm -hmm. a couple of minutes, we'll Mm -hmm. allow people to do that. Mm -hmm. I imagine that these are some of the same people who would talk about how their Aunt Marie, how their cousin Marie, how their grandma Marie, you know, was this kind of person or that kind of person and, and share all these really nice memories about her. But instead of them doing that when she was dead and couldn't hear them, they came there and shared those memories with her and talked to her and laughed with her and told her how much they appreciated her and loved being around her and all that kind of stuff. So I just thought that was really important. Mm -hmm. It's so healthy, too, to just, you know, meet the reality head on. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, some people say, oh, I just hate that I didn't get a chance to say goodbye. So people did. People did have a chance to say goodbye. My cousin Sylvia was there from California, and she often talks about my grandmother being one of her favorite aunts. We had a cousin come from Texas. People came from Missouri. A cousin came from Georgia. Hmm. You know, people came from all over across the state in Detroit and, you know, really laughed and talked and had some really, really good times. So I'm really glad about that. 
because her last days were not somber days. They weren't days when she was just in solitude and alone and having these impending melancholy thoughts about death. Now, that is not to say that she didn't have them, because I'm sure anyone who is facing death will have those kinds of thoughts. Like, Mm -hmm. this is the end. What does this mean? And, you know, what have I done with my life? All that kind of stuff. But what I'm saying is she wasn't isolated and she wasn't in solitude to have those kinds of thoughts really overwhelm her. Mm -hmm. How did your brothers react? She was surrounded by a lot of people. Mm -hmm. My brothers? Mm Mm-hmm. So my brother is that my grandmother is not their grandmother. Okay. Yeah. So my father is not their father. Okay. So this is something that wasn't really too much of an issue for them. They I mean, they expressed their her. condolences. Uh-huh. Yeah. They expressed their condolences to me, but it, they weren't really affected by it in the same way that I was. Mm-hmm. And um, how do you think the experience of caring for your grandma to the extent that you did and were there. I know that your Aunt Doris did most of the heavy lifting, but how do you think that it changed you? Oh, man. You know what? One of the ways, and I'm going to try not to get too emotional. Okay. (laughs) One of the ways that it really changed me was that I was really, I have struggled with depression since I was eight years old, and I was really struggling with a terrible bout at that time, and mm-hmm. particularly as I came came close to the end uh, in the PhD process, and I just really was struggling with the depression and also in the PhD program, but after she died, I just, I thought about her life being over and really thinking that, okay, now... She lived a full life for 82 years, and you have to find a way to also get back to life. So you have to try to find a way to carry some of the things that she wanted to do that she didn't get a chance to do because her life ended and because she was a woman of a different time and a different generation who didn't have some of the same opportunities that I have. Mm -hmm. I just felt like her death was inspiration for me to engage more in life. Hmm. And I started to really, really put some real effort into working to overcome that particular bout of depression Mm -hmm. and get back on track with life. But I was also really disappointed because I know she was really proud of me being in a PhD program and looked forward to calling me doctor. And I just wished that I had finished the PhD process Mm. and graduation and everything before she died so that she would have been able to see it. But I mean, I was ABD at that point and she knew that I was getting close. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, I'm sure she was proud of you. That's really, yeah, that's really what her death did for me is it it really encouraged me to re-engage in life more. So let me ask why you chose to write this piece. So it, it was about squad care. Right. right. So squad care is the theme of the project, but I didn't want to approach it as a typical journalism story. You know, mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. didn't want it to be something that would like this expert thinks of squad care and this is what this layperson thinks of squad care. So I really wanted to just think of an example of squad care in my life and when it had really been important. And that's just the first thing that I thought of. The first thing that I thought of was how everyone, regardless of how they did it, regardless of how they showed up, but the fact that all of these people did show up for grandma and to create this squad to care for her 
to me, that's the ultimate example of squad care. And I also um, wanted to write it because, well, the L audience is a younger audience, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. we know that. I mean, this is not more magazine. It's not AARP magazine. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a younger audience. Mm-hmm. And the, the writers were mostly our college students. And I was just one of the people, I was like one of the editors, the on-campus editor who was advising the students, like as a journalist with a lot of experience, I was helping them craft and shape their stories. But I mm-hmm. also was going to write something too. But I thought it was important, again, for me to write about something as a, like a personal example mm-hmm. about how squad care works. But then once I thought about the entire package, I thought it would be important to have something that was intergenerational because even though a lot of Elle's audience is not of the age that they might be a caregiver now, but at some point everyone will become a caregiver. Mm-hmm. And at some point everyone will need care. So I just thought that it would be good for this audience to be exposed to that because, you know, who knows when they will be in that position and they might be called upon to be on a squad to care for one of their elders, even if it's not an elder, maybe even it's someone else who gets into an accident or something. You just never know. Yeah, well, actually, um, almost a quarter of the caregivers in America are millennials now. They make up almost 25% of caregivers. So there's a lot of young folks who are caring for either somebody who is not elder, but, you know, has a disability or a grandparent or even a parent. Um, I wanted yeah. I wanted to talk about some of your other work because I think it's so interesting. I went back and read one of your, your piece on immigration on Common Ground. I know that was a while ago. It, it, oh, that was like in 2008. Yeah, that, that yeah. was a while ago, but it got me to thinking because, you know, we're talking about immigration right now, and I wondered what your thoughts are on America's reliance on the paid caregiving workforce, which is comprised primarily of women and women of color, and many of them are immigrants. Mm. So I'd love to get your views on where we are right now with immigration and um, the, the care workforce. For one thing, I understand that some families do not have the opportunity to do what our family did, right? right? right. And this was something that we did also for a short term, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So we did this for about a month or three or four weeks. But some families have elders who need long-term care that they're not necessarily skilled to give. And there are people who feel like kind of sandwiched, like the sandwich generation, still caring for children in their home. And also they have their elders that they have to care for. So I want to be clear that I'm not someone who is against family seeking paid care for their elders because that is something that is necessary and yeah. that's what people need. But at the same time, we do know that other cultures do make it a point to keep their elders in the home with them, no matter the cost or the challenge. So that's something that I do think is interesting about this country is that we're not always able to have our elders in the home with us, but some people are having to lean on paid care. And I mean, that's just something that's a necessity. And some families, you know, well, not some families, but just some people, period, see paid care as a value judgment, right? So Uh because your elder is in a nursing home or in a situation where they're not in the home and they're receiving care from someone else, they see that as a value judgment on that family. I don't necessarily see that the same way. 
yeah. because different families have different demands and different needs and different elders have different needs too that people are not necessarily always equipped to deal with in the home. So Yeah, no, I, um, I agree with you. I mean, there's no one size fits all. I'm concerned yeah. about this crackdown on immigration when, you know, when I know that a lot of the folks who care for our elders are undocumented or are immigrants doing great work and um, right. we, we need them. So first right. of all, I do should think be... that's an issue, too. Yeah. Like caregivers who are undocumented immigrants or, you know, immigrants who do have visas and all the paperwork to be here. You know, there are caregivers who are taking care of Americans of all generations, you know, whether they are taking care of our babies or our elders. We do have caregivers from across the country who are here doing this work, and it is important. And the fact that the president is looking at only having people who are so-called skilled workers, it does make one wonder, would caregiving be perceived as skilled work? Right. And would caregiving be perceived as important work? Because caregiving is also a gendered profession, right? It's one of these pink-collar professions. And we know that pink-collar professions don't get the same occupational prestige and even the same pay that they deserve. Mm -hmm. So now that we are kind of at this really important point in which immigration and immigrants and jobs and job status are now about to go through this really interesting hierarchy, it does beg the question, what does that mean for caregivers? Mm -hmm. And what does that mean for people who rely on the care of caregivers? So, I mean, I think that is something that that people need to look at. And I wonder if that is something that this administration is considering. I don't know if they are, but I think it's a a good question. Hmm. If you can remember this, I'd love to have you recollect your last moments with your grandma and what that was like for you. Yeah, it was really sad and also kind of happy at the same time because, like I said, I went to my mother's in Kalamazoo for a couple of days. And when I got back, I mean, I just really couldn't believe how much she had changed. And she was kind of not really coherent all the time. So I was just really shocked and and really saddened by, like, how she would get up and stand up but not remember why she stood up or she was like, I'm going somewhere, but I don't know where I'm going and all that. But right before I was getting ready to leave, like I said, it was on a Thursday and she died three days later. But she really was incoherent and, like, some of the things that – she said didn't really make sense but I said well grandma this is Sherry and I hate it but I have to go home for a little while and I hope to see you soon and she was like I know who you are why are you talking to me like that and I was (laughs) like oh okay I'm sorry because she had like again not really been coherent so I didn't know if she knew it was me and I didn't know if she really understood that I was leaving and again up until that point she had been really clear and lucid. I didn't know she still even knew that she was dying at that point. Hmm. So, I mean, it was like she had kind of clicked back into herself. So I said, I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. She said, well, yeah, I know who you are. And I know, basically, I know what's going on. Why are you talking to me like this? And I said, "Um, well, Grandma, I'm sorry, but I am going to have to go home. But I hope to see you soon. And she said, you know what, Sherry, 
you really came through. You really came through for me, little girl. I called and you came. You came on through and I really appreciate it. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget you for that little girl. And I said, oh, Grandma, oh, you didn't have to say that. I appreciate that. <laughs> she said, I know I didn't, but I just wanted to let you know that. And I left. And, of course, I was in tears by the time I got to the car and stuff. And mm-hmm. and I, of course, you know, called back to the house and checked back in pretty much a few times every day after that. And then that Sunday, I got the call that she was gone. Well, I'm glad that you got to have those last moments with her. Uh, she sounds like an incredible lady. Yeah. Well, what would you like others to know that you learned from this experience that others might find helpful about this experience for you? Um, I mean, I I think that caregiving like people and families is going to be different just for every family and every situation. But I do think it's important for people to know, and one of the palliative care specialists said this, and I got some quotes from them, is that people, when they are dying, they just want you to be there and just to be there as much as you can and not really be there with sadness and pity, but just to be there and be around them and just kind of maintain some sort of normalcy for them so they don't feel isolated or alone because none of us really can understand what they're going through because, I mean, I haven't faced death before, so I don't really know what that's like. So I couldn't um, empathize with her or talk about that Mm -hmm. with her. But I think one thing that she really appreciated was just us just being there, just Mm -hmm. everyone being there, being around her, you know, just talking to her the same way that we always would and interacting just like it was regular days, regular times, just so that she wouldn't feel so afraid. I just feel like from that experience, what I saw is that she just appreciated people showing up. Just show up. Media scholar, researcher, and veteran journalist, Dr. Sherry Williams, will have a link on the AgeWise website to her wonderful article titled, It Takes a Squad to Care for an Elder, written for L Online, uh, as well as a link to uh, Dr. Williams' website. Sherry, thank you so much for being on the show. I really love this article, so thank you for writing it, and thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you like this show, please tell your friends and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out some of our other episodes. Head on over to agewise.com, that's A-G-E-W-Y-Z, or Z, as my Canadian mother says, and use our search feature to discover some great conversations with guests who talk about issues of specific interest to you. You'll get tips, find links to useful information, and best of all, know you're not alone. The AgeWise podcast is produced and mixed by me, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk Radio Network. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.